Oh, gracious Lord, our God, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us grace to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, that we, by the moving of your Spirit, should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have life in his name. Thank you, O Lord, for sending your Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners, and we pray that you would help us to see him today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Here now God's word as we begin our reading again on verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Part of the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. It is uh, a sobering thought, I think, to, to realize how many of our Christmas traditions are rooted in the effects of human sin. Uh, the candy cane is a good example. Uh, maybe somebody has given you a candy cane with a poem attached at one point, and that, that little uh, sweet little poem that tells the, the legend of the candy cane. Look at the candy cane, what do you see? Stripes that are red like the blood shed for me. White for my Savior who's sinless and pure. J is for Jesus, my Lord, that's for sure. Turn it around and a staff you will see. Jesus, my shepherd, was born for me. 
Uh, the words are so saccharine sweet that some grinchy part of me winces when I, uh, when I read that. But much to my chagrin and my bah humbug spirit, actually the Spangler Candy Company suggests that, that there is some truth to this. That the traditional red and white hook that we see at Christmas time uh, can be traced back to a candy maker from Indiana who wanted to create a sweet to remind children of Jesus at Christmas. So there is an association with the blood and the purity, but on the other hand, the larger association between candy canes and Christmas stretches back a few centuries further. It goes back to a German choir director that a legend tells us in around the year 1670 handed out straight candy sticks to the children's singers. He did so so that they would remain quiet during the long Christmas Eve services. It was like the precursor to the iPad in the back seat. Or uh, consider the lessons and carols service. We gather each year to celebrate the readings and the hymns. That's a plug, by the way. We'll do that this Friday evening. We gather each year to celebrate the lessons and the hymns of uh, the Christmas message. And maybe you have seen a broadcast from the BBC uh, of the real thing uh, that ours is just a small imitation of, the real thing at King's College in Cambridge. Uh, and they are there rehearsing their 100-year tradition but 40 years before the service was picked up in Cambridge, the first service, Lessons and Carols, uh, was held in the city of Truro. It's well documented that the minister who planned that original service had a goal in mind, and his goal was to get the men out of the pubs early enough that they would not show up tipsy to the Christmas Eve vigil. So, there you have it. Uh, between the poles of restless children and drunken adults, Proof that even Christmas isn't free from the effects of our sin. And you know this to be true uh, from your own heart. How often have you shown up to a Christmas celebration that hangs awkwardly under the, the shadow of an, uh, an unresolved issue, some unhealed family trauma? How often, perhaps, have you been the one whose selfish impulses have spoiled the season for everyone else? How long have you sat lonely at Christmas longing for someone you loved whom death has taken from you? There is no human celebration since the fall in the garden, not even the celebration of our favorite Christmas traditions. No human celebration since the fall has been not touched, has not been touched by the stain of our iniquity. Actually, the minister who arranged that first lessons and carols service knew that too. That's why every year since 1880, Christians throughout the English-speaking world have begun their lessons and carol services the same way, with the same text, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. It's the first passage in the Bible that details the fruit of human sin. It's also the first passage in the Bible that foretells of the Savior who had come into our world and to pull up that wicked plant by its roots. In this short passage, we see our human sin, but we also see God's pursuing grace. That's how we're going to divide it today in two main points. Our human sin and God's pursuing grace. Now, in verse 8, 
again, already in progress, we immediately encounter our human sin. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This isn't a theological encyclopedia. It doesn't show us, doesn't tell us everything that we might want to know about the biblical topic of sin, uh, but it does show us enough that from our vantage point, east of Eden, we can, we can recognize the experience that's happening here. We can resonate with the way that sin shows up in our own lives. In fact, that's the beauty of this passage. Elsewhere in Scripture, we learn about what our sin is. We learn about what our sin costs. Sin is lawlessness. The wages of sin is death. Elsewhere in Scripture, we get a glimpse of sin from God's point of view. But here in Genesis 3, we find out what sin feels like for the sinner. What the experience of sin is like in real time. And what sin feels like is fear and division and an impulse to hide. So sin in our lives produces fear. On Friday in, uh, in our home, in our driveway, my wife was moving things from one of our vehicles to the other vehicle, and I was inside completely oblivious to what she was doing or even the fact that she was out there. And while I was inside oblivious, one of my children came to me and said, Dad, what does this little red panic button on your key fob do? So I demonstrated. <laughs> and in the process, almost gave my wife a heart attack. But in our driveway, Sarah was startled, and in the garden, Adam was terrified. There's a difference there. Imagine. He tells the Lord in verse 10 that when he heard his sound in the garden, he was afraid. That's an understatement. Can you imagine what it was like never to have known anything in all the world that was worth being afraid of, and then suddenly to have an existential dread wash over you like a flood and threaten to consume you in its rising tide? Can you imagine if the first fear you had ever felt was the pure, white-hot fear of God's judgment against your sin. And now as a species, we've gotten so used to our fear that, uh, that we don't notice it much of the time anymore. We've built up an immunity to it. We, we seek it out sometimes. We intentionally spike our adrenaline on roller coasters and bungee jumps. We fill our eyes and our nightmares with horror films. We seek out ways to sit with our fear and to make it feel less fearful. But then there are times when we're alone and we're awake in the darkness. And there are times when Adam's experience descends upon our souls. Modern humanity tries to explain it away. You don't need to pay attention to that. You need to get rid of that feeling. That's just, that's just the shame of growing up in an overbearing uh, childhood. That's merely the societal expectation to conform to certain behaviors. Don't pay attention to that. It's neurosis. It's schizophrenia. It's unhelpful mental anguish. And we can prescribe something to make it go away. And maybe they can. But when sin enters the human experience, nobody has to teach you how to feel the fear of God. It's the sense that like Adam and his wife, you are naked and you are exposed. You are unmasked 
in your guilt. You are defenseless in the presence of God's holiness. What does sin feel like? It feels like fear of God's judgment. It also feels like division. You can see the division between man and his maker in the way that, uh, that they try to hide from God's presence. Literally, it says, from his face in the Hebrew. And we're going to come back to that hiding in a minute. But first, consider uh, this division that's created not between man and God, but between man and man. Specifically between man and woman here in the garden, between humanity and humanity. When the Lord presses for a confession in verse 11, Adam falls into blame shifting. He points his finger first at God, who gave him the woman, and then he points his finger at the woman who gave him the fruit. What a difference a chapter makes. Back in chapter 2, when the Lord presented Eve to Adam, he erupted into poetry. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There was a unity in chapter 2. There's a solidarity. They're together in the world that the Lord had made for them and with all of the, the directives he's given them to tend and subdue and, and to watch over the earth, and there's a unity there. And even in chapter 3, consistently from our narrator, from Moses, he writes of the couple in relational terms. Verse 8, he says the man and his wife hid themselves. Verse 6, it's reversed. The woman took and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. With relational terms, her husband, his wife, the two are joined together. But when Adam is confronted with his sin, he begins to speak of his wife in the third person. The woman that you gave to be with me, he says. You know her. Over there. That one. This is the point at which we realize that the honeymoon is over because there is a division between this first created couple. In fact, you see it not only in the way that they try to hide from God, but the way that they make loincloths for themselves to cover their own nakedness, even though they're the only two human beings in existence on the face of the planet. They're divided not only from the Lord, but they are divided from one another. And this is not just some fable or legend. This is the experience of every human sinner who's ever lived. And it's the experience that happens not just in our marriage. It happens in all of our human interactions when, when shame and guilt and fear enter in and we're divided from one another. It's why relationships break down when we're too self-centered to do what's best for anyone other than ourselves. It's why we live in a world where one person can hate another person because their skin is a different color. It's why uh, humanity tends to make enemies and scapegoats and victims of one another. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what sin produces. It's what it feels like. It feels like malice and envy and hatred. It produces a division between man and God and also between man and man. Well, see, here's our human sin and what it feels like. It feels like fear and it, it feels like division, but perhaps worst of all, the worst part of of sin's experience is this impulse to hide. Now, this is also something that no one needs to teach a sinner. 
when I was a young boy, I often got into trouble with my older brother. And so at the same time, we would get the same punishments. And I don't remember how old I was. I don't remember what we had done. But I do remember there was a time when we were both lined up for our spankings. And it was his turn to go first. And I don't know where it came from. But something deep inside said, run away. This, this reasoning, this justification, if you run fast enough, your dad can't catch you. And if your dad can't catch you, he can't give you a spanking. And I never ran so fast in all my life. And I never saw my dad run that fast either. <laughs> it's not something that you have to learn. No parent ever teaches their children to hide the toy that they've broken, to lie about hitting their sister, and yet generation after generation, kids try the same tricks at least once. Right? It's the reflex that's produced by the recognition of our guilt. It is an attempt at self-preservation. We recognize that our sin is an offense against God. We recognize that an offense against God brings judgment and condemnation. We long to be free from judgment and condemnation, so we imagine that we can stuff our sin away somewhere that, we can't, that it can't be seen. We can hide ourselves from God's gaze somewhere that he can't find us. But like Adam and Eve, we forget that the only place that we have to hide is among the world that God has made. The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from his presence among the trees of the garden. They hung them, they, they, excuse me, they hid themselves. Uh, they hid themselves among God's gifts, his creation, his mercies to them to provide food and shelter and beauty. And so the creature attempts to use creation to escape the creator. We do the same thing. We try to make a fortress of secrecy out of the things that the Lord has made. Where do we hide our sin and our guilt? We hide it in pleasant distractions sometimes. Food and drink and sex and sleep and a thousand other things that uh, that we use to keep ourselves entertained, to keep the Lord at arm's reach or better. We hide our sin and our guilt in our intellectual arguments. We take the logic that the Lord has given us, the, the intellect he's, he's given us to rationalize that our sin is not too bad, to, to tell ourselves that God is not too concerned, or we take the nuclear option and say none of it really matters anyway. It, it's all just a, a story. It's all just make-believe. We hide our sin and our guilt and our religious busyness, thinking that if we do enough good deeds, if we perform enough meritorious works, that the Lord won't be able to see around them and, and see this mountain of sin that follows us everywhere. And so we hide, so we distract, and a lot of the time it feels like it's working. And that's why I think that this hiding is the worst part of the experience of sin. Not because it's the frustrating part, but it, because it's the part that it feels like, you know, we might just get away with it. I might be able to outrun my Heavenly Father, and He might not be able to catch up with me and give me what I deserve. That puts us in the most dangerous place of all. It leaves us hiding from the God who can heal us. You see, sin is is a disease that keeps the patient sick because it makes them allergic to the medicine that they need to get better. It's a sore throat that's so bad that you can't, 
even bring yourself to swallow the cough medicine. It's a spiritual anorexia. When what the anorexic needs is nourishment, but the last thing they want to have is nourishment, and so they poison themselves and they wither away because they will not come and be satisfied. And the experience of the first couple in the garden is the experience of any, every sinner with a human father that the world has ever known. It feels like fear and it feels like division. And it feels like hiding from the only one who can heal you. And so we need the rest of what this text is teaching us. This isn't just an encounter of our experience with sin. It's also telling us how God pursues his sinful people with his grace. This is our second point, God's pursuing grace. You know, maybe you've heard a preacher preach through Ephesians chapter 2 sometime. Uh, and when they do, preachers like to point out the way that the entire gospel message hinges on two little words, but God. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God made you alive together in Christ. The same dynamic is true here. Because we read already in verse 8, we find that our first parents were walking in sin, slinking away to avoid the face of God, so the man and his wife hid themselves. And then verse 9 tells us, but the Lord God called to the man. He's the God who pursues. And he pursues us first with the knowledge of our sin. That might seem counterintuitive because sin is the thing we're trying to get away from. Sin and, and its guilt is the thing that we're trying to hide from the Lord. But he pursues us first with, with love and care to show us what our sin really is. Don't you find it amazing that the Lord does not descend into the garden in flaming fire with heavenly trumpets and declare his judgment to a speechless, awestruck Adam? Aren't you amazed that, that unlike all of the other sinners who are confronted with God's grace in the New Testament and the prophets, Adam somehow is able to stand upright in God's presence and not fall on his face before the judgment of the Lord? Aren't you amazed at the care and the gentleness with which God comes to him? The judgment is going to come. It'll show up for Adam in verse 17. It'll show up for his wife in verse 16. But in this conversation with Adam, the Lord asks questions. Well, the Lord, of course, knew what Adam had done. Right? So, so when God asked these questions, when he asked where he was, he already saw him. When he asked if he had eaten of the tree, he could already smell the fruit on his breath. The Lord wasn't asking these questions in order to learn something, but you know there are questions that you ask in order to teach something. It's like doing science experiments with with homeschoolers, you, you ask your child, what did you do to cause that reaction? What happened next? Describe it to me. And if you're offended by the comparison between Majestic Adam and a middle schooler, you give humanity too much credit. Adam and Eve were created as adults. They were fully formed. They were physically mature. They were able and ready to fill the earth and subdue it. But when it came to their experience of sin, they were infants. They were like toddlers touching something hot for the first time. 
And they weren't innocent, but they were at a very teachable moment. And so when the pain of that experience is washing over them, what they need more than anything, along with a little gentleness, is to be able to make very clear and concrete connections between what have you done and what is the consequence. It's part of God's mercy for us. It's part of the way that he treats us like a loving father. He still does it for us. Hebrews 12.10 tells us that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. The word behind that idea of discipline really means to train a child. It's child training. It means to teach the elementary principles to those who are just growing up in a world of sin and obedience. It means, as, as Calvin said in his writings, that the Lord lists to us like a loving parent speaking baby talk to her child. The Lord comes and he speaks gently, but he speaks truth and he exposes our sin because it's how he pursues us. It's how he leads us and teaches us about righteousness. Now, you might notice that the, the serpent had his own question, didn't he? Rather than discipline, his question was aimed at destruction. And so his question was, was aimed at undermining God's very clear commands by, by inserting this worming dissatisfaction that would work its way into the heart of Eve and her husband. So he said, did God really say? He opens the door to, to justify and to rationalize and to minimize and to explain away, well, well, God said that to them, but I don't think that applies to me. Well, God said this here, but my situation is probably different. It wasn't in the, the biblical writer's mind at the time. We live in a different age. We have different struggles. We encounter different things. And all along, it's the same question. Did God really say? No, the Lord pursues us for our good. He pursues us with a knowledge of sin as it actually is. So you notice that when Eve speaks about the tree, she calls it the tree in the midst of the garden. When God speaks about the tree, he says, the tree which I commanded you not to eat from. There's no way of getting around it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't allow Adam to say, well, it, it wasn't that bad. It didn't, it didn't apply here in this way at that time part of the way that he pursues us. He shows us sin as it really is. He opens our eyes to see what it costs us. He walks with us slowly to show us who it hurts. He always points it back to what he's commanded. He always points it back to how we failed to trust him and to take him at his word, and that's part of his mercy. That he pursues us with the knowledge of our sin. You know, one of the most regular issues I run into with people who are just beginning to grow in the faith is this question of, I thought I would feel like I was a better Christian by now. Why is it that I've been walking with the Lord now for two years, three years, five years, and I keep seeing more of my sin, not less? Because the Lord keeps teaching you and training you. He pursues us with the knowledge of our sin. He also pursues us with the promise of our Savior. And so I mentioned already that from the early days of the Christian church, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, has been known as the first gospel. 
the Proto-Evangelion. It's right here, right at the inception of the human story of sin that the Lord makes his first promise to bring judgment on the one who opened the door to disobedience. It's going to take the rest of the scripture to tell this story. But even here in the context of judgment and curse, there's enough detail to give us hope that God is able to conquer our sin. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is not Rudyard Kipling. Uh, this is not a just-so story like how the camel got its hump. Right? This, is, this is not so much about the serpent being legless as it is about the serpent being loathsome. Low and despised. This this curse, especially this division, this separation for the woman, this is the Lord putting the snake in a new light. Just half a chapter earlier, the serpent was alluring enough to draw her in. He was smooth enough to get past her defenses, but now he's going to be seen as this shifty character. The one who slithers in the darkness and bites the hand of the unsuspecting and kills its victims without remorse, he's going to be seen for the danger that he is. Of course, this is teaching us spiritual truth. The serpent is more than just a snake. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 calls him the great dragon, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is teaching us spiritual truth. So when the Lord proclaims enmity between the serpent and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring, but we need to understand that it's Satan himself who's being condemned. The serpent is, is a symbol of God's plague against the devil. And so just like when we see God's symbol in the heavens, when we see the rainbow, we're supposed to remember his promise never to bring the floodwaters upon the earth again. So when we see a, a rattleskin, rattlesnake skin pair of boots, or when we see a uh, a, a snake's head or tail in some museum gift shop somewhere. We're supposed to remember God's promise to triumph over the serpent. That's what's contained here. This language of eating the dust, that's how the Lord speaks of his conquered enemies in the prophets. It's an indication that despite the rebellion that he whispered into the hearts of this man and his wife, the serpent's triumph is not going to be long-lived. So the Lord promises enmity. Enmity is an active hostility. Not a grudge, not, not something that fades into the background, but, but enmity is the language of warfare, of an opposition to the death, of one side fighting against the other, trying to gain the upper hand at any cost. And this enmity that he's speaking about here will be played out throughout the ages of human history. You see it already and the offspring of Eve and, and her two children, Cain and Abel, and, and the older slew the younger. Both children of the woman, both offspring, but the New Testament tells us that Cain was of the evil one. He belonged to a different spiritual family. The same thing happens when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 44 of the Gospel of John, and he tells them, you were of your father the devil. There's no truth in him. You you speak lies as he speaks. He's been a murderer from the beginning. He's speaking about a different spiritual descent. So there's a way we can, we can understand this in the way that it's dividing all of humanity. 
Bruce Waltke says, between the elect and the reprobate, between those who love God and those who love themselves, there is this enmity happening, and we could see it in this larger sense, but the Lord is focusing it not on, uh, not on peoples, not on histories, but on a person. All the enmity of, of the Jewish leaders, those Pharisees that Jesus denounced in chapter 8 of John, all of their enmity against him would be, would be meted out on the cross of Calvary. It would come to a laser focus where he was put to death for the sins of the people. They were full of opposition to God's will. And, and the Lord said this would happen many years ago in the garden, that all of their enmity would climax in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, it had to. Because it was the only way that God can solve our problem. We've already discussed and, and learned that the cancer of our sin makes us hide from the God who can heal us. It makes us more willing to starve in our iniquity than to come to God and partake of his righteousness. To steal the words of Bruce Waltke, our sin makes us lovers of self rather than lovers of God. It leaves us on the wrong side of this enmity. It aligns us with the father of lies, the serpent. It makes us those who are his children if we are left in it. It leaves us not able to feel our way and grope through the darkness to find our salvation in God. It leaves us, in the language of Ephesians 2, lost in the grip of the serpent. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, but God. But God called the man. But God made you alive together in Christ Jesus. It's the only way, because if God's people are going to be saved, it's God himself who has to do the saving. He has to pursue them with his Savior. It's going to take the rest of the Bible to tell the story, but God's plan was to send a son, the seed of a woman, the offspring of Abraham, the root of Jesse, the lion of the tribe of Judah, it was the one who would be born sinless into a world ruined by our iniquity. He's the one who would do battle against the serpent in the wilderness and who himself would be wounded on the cross of Calvary. And so we sing it every year at our Christmas celebrations. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. But he'd be raised again. He'd be vindicated. He'd be victorious the spotless Lamb of God who crushed the head of the serpent. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 tells us, Since therefore the children, the offspring, the people who love the Lord, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death subject to lifelong slavery. And you know what sin feels like, don't you? It feels like fear, and it feels like division, and it feels like this impulse to hide. But in Christ Jesus, the Lord has come to find us. He's come to carry our sin and to conquer our enemy. He's come to deliver us from our fear of judgment and to give us hope in his salvation. And this is the gospel. 
the joy of Christmas that doesn't ignore the problem of our sin, but answers the problem of our sin in him. Dear Christians, I hope you rejoice in this message this year. As you're opening all your presents on Christmas morning, as you're thinking about all the things the Lord has provided, as you're thinking about uh, a year that's been tainted by your own sin, touched by loss or, or, or touched by pain or touched by all the things that, that our first parents brought into the world. There's a promise here that already the serpent has been wounded. Already the head has been cut off. And eventually there will be no more life left and he will be cast into the abyss. It's not just a victory uh, for God himself against his enemy. It's a victory for God's people. In the end of, of Romans, uh, Paul applies the same idea to the, the corporate people of God. Remember that division between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman. In Romans chapter 16, Paul says that the Lord of glory will soon crush Satan under your feet. How does he do it? He does it through the Savior. He does it through joining us by faith to himself. He does it by giving us the sacrifice for sinners, the one who has put to death the power, the one, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Let's rejoice together in our Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this, your word of truth. We pray that we would hear it and rejoice in it. We pray that you would make us to walk with Christ Jesus, our Savior. And teach us that you're the one who takes all our sin and our iniquity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.